welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors. Ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. When you make moral judgments, what is happening at the psychological level? According to one theory, you're applying a template of two roles. An intentional wrongdoer and a sensitive and vulnerable victim. The more closely that template fits a situation, the more likely you are to deem the situation immoral. Research by today's guest, Tanya Reynolds, shows how these moral evaluations intersect with gender, and her research reveals that people more easily stereotype men as powerful wrongdoers and women as sensitive victims. Tanya is a social psychologist and postdoctoral fellow at the Kinsey Institute. She's joining us from Bloomington, Indiana. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Chris. How are things going in Indiana? <laughs> Wonderfully. The fall is beautiful. I've never seen a true fall before, so I'm really enjoying all the leaves. That is great. So you moved there from Florida, and I can see why the leaves in Florida would be considerably different. <laughs> it's quite the change. No more beaches. Yeah. Also, no alligators, right? Nice. Well, we're here to talk about a new paper that you have that is under review, should be out to the public pretty soon. Um, and it's about perceptions of men and women as agents and patients. And I think a good place to begin is the moral theory that you're using is Kurt Gray's theory. It's different from John Haidt's theory. I think most of our listeners might be familiar with Jonathan Haidt's theory that there are moral foundations and they're a bit like taste buds. And some people have sensitive taste buds of one sort. Some people have sensitive taste buds of another. And um, something triggers you as immoral if it touches those taste buds. And Kurt Gray's theory is about agents and patients and harm. And he's saying there aren't six separate dimensions. There's just really one. And that's about harm. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. So he argues we have this cognitive prototype, this schema in our minds for perceiving moral actions. So if you think of, for example, assault, there are two roles. There's the assailant and then the victim. So Kurt Gray argues we have this natural template through which we perceive moral actions and we kind of naturally categorize the targets involved as either intentional agents or you can think of them as perpetrators or a suffering patient or a victim. And he argues that these categories are to some degree mutually exclusive. So that is, as we tend to see a target as more of a patient or victim, it's harder for us to see them as the intentional agent or perpetrator. And he argues that these two roles evoke different moral responses. So in response to a perpetrator, we perceive them as responsible, intentional, and therefore deserving of blame or punishment. And then in response to the victim role or the patient role, we perceive them as vulnerable and we emphasize that they are experiencing the harmful act. So we perceive them as experiencing pain. And in response, we might feel sympathy or a desire to protect and care for them. And in that case, uh, that template is something that also creates typecasting, right? Exactly. So Kurt argues that when we see these moral actions or when we think of a moral action, we kind of instinctively typecast these two roles. One target goes into the agent role or the perpetrator, and the other target goes into the victim role. And that 
even in, he argues that even in cases of morality where there doesn't seem to be a victim, people naturally kind of impute that. So even in victimless crimes, they, they, they apply this moral, um, this cognitive template, and they kind of assume there is a victim, someone must have been harmed, that we go into every moral action kind of wanting to see these two roles. Right. I remember one of the presentations he gave in which he talked about how seemingly harmless things are perceived, well, things that are related, for example, to sexual purity and impurity. Uh, if both partners are actually consenting to the sexual act, some very traditional people or religious people who perceive sexual purity as important think that sexually immoral acts, even if both adults consent, um, harm God or harm children because of the, the they uh, contaminate the moral atmosphere, so to speak, and so there are victims. Yeah, or even harming oneself. So, um, in the case of you know masturbation or something, someone might see the person as potentially harming themselves. So they kind of fit the role of both. Um, Perpetrator right. and yeah, victim. it comes down partly to the perception that human beings have souls, and you can harm your soul even if you're uh, through carelessness. Even if no other human being is being physically harmed or mentally harmed, your your soul can be contaminated. I was raised Catholic, so I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of familiar with those doctrines. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that could be challenging because then you you know struggle with oh, is this the right thing? Is this the wrong thing? Or am I? You know, committing these unintentional harms. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, but I do. I mean, I. I, I guess one one of the <laughs> things I gain from being raised Catholic is I can relate to the fact that it's possible to believe that you you have a soul that uh, that is separate from your mind, and it's very tricky. They don't quite delineate where one ends and the other stops, but that your soul must also be pure. And uh, if I recall, suicide is also considered a sin because you are destroying your soul. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm not a Catholic theologian, so if, if anyone out there is listening and I got that wrong, please write to me <laughs> and tell me about that. <laughs> but uh, taking this moral typecasting, you looked at gender stereotypes and you said, based on a lot of past evidence, that women are seen as sort of kind and tender and uh, they don't, they're not very agentic, so things happen to them, whereas men are seen as agentic, so men, are, men take action, they initiate action. And going back a couple of decades, research by people like Lori Rudman and Daryl Bem, or is it Sandra Bem, and uh, other people have, have shown this. Is that right? Yeah. So we have a lot of gender stereotypes that link women with this patient role. So we conceptualize femininity as, you know, including traits such as tender or gentle or yielding. Um, and people do indeed expect that women have lower tolerance for pain compared to men, um, suggesting that, you know, any harm might actually cause more suffering to women. Uh, and then likewise for men, you know, our concepts of masculinity are often centered around this agentic role. So we see masculine as being dominant, self-sufficient, assertive. And Redmond has shown that even at an implicit level, people kind of um, associate men with things like threat, anger, and violence. And to some degree, these are backed up by 
the data in the world. So these stereotypes aren't exactly arbitrary, um, just as Lee Jessam's work would suggest. So, for example, men are more likely to commit violent crimes across cultures. So there would be just reason for us to more instinctively see men as perpetrators uh, compared to victims. Right. For listeners who are unfamiliar with Lee Jessam, I interviewed him many episodes ago, but his mainstream of work has been on stereotype accuracy, and he does work of this sort, looking at whether stereotypes are in fact accurate. So moving to yeah. the first study you conducted, the question you were asking is, are women more easily typecast as victims? How did you study that? Yeah, so that's the broader goal of this project is to see, okay, is there a bias in moral typecasting such that it's cognitively easier to place women in these victim roles and men in the perpetrator role? So what we did for study one is we had we had online participants read one of three scenarios depicting harm in the workplace. So for example, one of them described a surgeon bullying the trainee, the surgical trainee, to the point where the trainee developed uh, depression and suicidal ideation. And so we made sure that we kept the target of the harm ambiguous as to their gender because we wanted to see, do people assume that the harm target is female? So if people are using, if they have a biased application of moral typecasting, then when you see it harm, you should instinctively assume that the harm target is female if the if the schema is biased. But another thing that we did is we also manipulated the labeling of the targets in the situation. So we either labeled them as victim and perpetrator, or we labeled them more neutrally, just, you know, party A harmed party B. And so we looked at do participants assume that the harmed individual is a female? And indeed, that's what we found. So we found that participants more often assumed that the harm target was female, but especially when we used the terms victim and perpetrator. So it suggests that by using these labels, we are activating this schema and amplifying the degree to which people assume that the harm target is female. Moreover, what we also found is that when people assumed the harm target was a woman, they responded more positively towards her. So they had warmer affective responses when they assumed the harm target is female as opposed to male, suggesting that when women are cast in this victim role, that we might have you know more tender responses because women might more easily fit that victim that victim category. So all the associated responses to victimhood that Kurt Gray argues, you know, perceiving them as experiencing pain and feeling sympathy might be activated more strongly when women are in that role. And this was a forced choice where they had to pick A is female and B is male or A is male and B is female. Is that correct? So, yes. Yeah, so they were, um, they were forced to indicate, you know, who do you think, what do you think the sex of the harm target was? And we inserted the term, you know, victim or party A. And so they were forced to choose male or female. And we found that on average, people um, assume <clears throat> a female victim, so about 76% of the time. But this likelihood was even stronger when we used the terms perpetrator and victim. And the sample in the study was entirely American. So these were MTurk. Individuals. Um, so, yes, they were uh, Americans. 
So in your next study, you broaden that to a cross-cultural sample. Tell me about that. Exactly. Yeah, and one limitation of study, the first study is, you know, participants could have been bringing in some gender stereotypes such as, well, if it's the case that women are more often in subordinate workplace roles, such as, you know, in the case of the surgical trainee, then perhaps they assumed that's the reason that the harm target is female. Or because we mentioned that the harm target experienced, you know, depression and suicidal ideation, perhaps they were, you know, applying their gender stereotypes about depression, and, and that's why they assumed that the harm target was female. So in study two, we tried to rule out as many of those confounding variables as possible by reducing our stimuli to using only these animated videos of triangles. So trying to reduce as much of like the human factors <laughs> as possible. So we recruited two samples. We wanted to make it cross-cultural. We recruited Chinese managers and then Norwegian university students. And each participant saw three brief videos. And in the videos, they were just triangles interacting. So the triangles were moving around. And two of the videos depicted harm. So in one, the green triangle hits, kind of pokes the orange triangle. And then in another one, there's a, a scenario of retaliation where the green triangle pokes the orange triangle, but the orange hits back. Um, and then in the third one, there was no no apparent harm, so the triangles just kind of stare at one another. And so we told participants, okay, um, assume that this is uh, these interactions depict a male and female coworker interacting in the workplace. They might depict the videos might depict harm, but it's not physical harm because we wanted to rule out any stereotypes associated with physical aggression. And so. We asked participants, okay, after watching this video, rate the degree to which each triangle is a victim and each triangle is a perpetrator. And then at the end, we asked them, which triangle, what do you think the sex of each triangle is? So do you think green is male, orange is female, or vice versa? And so what we predicted is that across the scenarios, the more that a participant saw a triangle as a perpetrator, the greater the likelihood the participant would classify that triangle as male and vice versa. So the more that they saw a triangle as a victim, they would classify that triangle as female. And so that's exactly what we found. Basically, across all the videos, the more that participants saw a triangle as a perpetrator, they were more likely to classify that triangle as male. And the more they saw a triangle as a victim, they were more likely to classify that triangle as female. And we didn't find any differences across the study samples. So even though we had quite different cultural samples, Chinese managers and Norwegian students, we found the same pattern across. And so what I think this suggests is that this is a, it, these findings suggest that this might be kind of a cross-cultural feature of human cognition. So that it, this biased application of moral typecasting may be relatively universal. Granted, we only tested it in two samples. So, you know, we would want future investigations in a, a broader cultural context. But the evidence thus far does support that this is a tendency such that, you know, when people look at these moral these, these situations involving harm, it's easier for them it's, to cognitively link 
perpetrator with male and victimization with female. And in this case, the triangle paradigm, it's a case where you have a very simple background and it's like an animated video, sort of like a 1980s video game like Pac-Man, correct? <laughs> yeah, we wanted to remove <laughs> as much of the you know human factors as possible to just see whether people can even you know attribute these identities to animated shapes you know removing as much of the human features as possible (laughs) right i mean so they they're perceived as agents and patients they're they're perceived as having will but you can't i mean i guess they could be human they could be animals they could just be animated characters so you could so in this case the person viewing the video can just see them as whatever they want Yes. Yeah. So people, humans have a tendency to anthropomorphize and it's relatively easy for us, especially when they're moving to see intentions and <laughs> and right. feelings and motives. So yeah, we relied upon that, that tendency. Okay. So where did you take the studies from this point? Okay. So at this point you can ask, okay, so what? So what if it's easier for us to place women in the victim role and men in the perpetrator role? Why does that matter? So in the remainder of the package, the study package, we wanted to see, okay, how does a biased moral type casting, how does that shape our moral responses to harm? So as you remember, Kurt Gray argues in response to the the victim or the patient role that evokes sympathy and care, but in response to the agent or perpetrator role, people feel these feelings of blame and desire to punish. So for the next three studies, we used um, one study of online American adults, one study used Korean individuals, and then a third study used uh, American undergraduates in the lab. And so across all three of these samples, we exposed participants to eight different social scenarios where we manipulated the gender of the harmed or disadvantaged target. So some of these were at the level of the group. So for example, we talked about, um, so imagine there's a affirmative action policy that would increase the proportion of women in male-dominated fields, such as investment banking or science. And in the reverse condition, participants would see, okay, imagine there's an affirmative action policy to increase the proportion of men in female-dominated fields, such as nursing, uh, education, And we measured participants' moral responses to each of these scenarios. So um, another example for was, you know, in one condition, they might see drug overdose rates are increasing more sharply among men or drug overdose rates are increasing more sharply among women. Um, In another one, we looked at, you know, um, there are more men than women at the bottom of society, so in jail or homeless Or the alternate condition would be there are more men than women at the top of society, such as CEOs or professors. So in response to these different scenarios, we measured participants' moral responses. So their moral outrage, you know, this makes me angry, this upsets me, this is morally wrong. We measured how fair they perceived it, how much sympathy they felt for the harmed or disadvantaged target, how much they blamed the disadvantaged individual, so saying this outcome is their own fault. And then we also measured, you know, to what degree do you think this is a serious problem society should strive to fix? And if it was a policy one, um, to what degree do you support the policy? So, um, for example, in a 
one of the policies was women can retire earlier than men, or in the alternate condition, men can retire earlier than women. So participants saw only one of these versions for each of the scenarios. And so what we found is that across the scenarios and across the samples, we saw a systematic pattern such that the gender of the harm target shaped the moral responses of participants. So participants felt more moral outrage when women were harmed or a female was harmed compared to men. They, and you found that regardless of the condition, like regardless of whether the scenario was a drug overdose or affirmative action? So we didn't break them apart by the particular scenarios. We did look at, so some of the scenarios manipulated harm at the individual level. So we used some um, more interpersonal scenarios, such as, you know, uh, a boss is overworking a male employee or a boss is overworking a female employee. Um, or a boss is excluding a female employee or male employee. So we did look at whether they were, um, whether effects were, uh, whether they differed based on if the scenario was at the level of individuals, more interpersonal, or at the level of group outcomes. And what we found is that um, there were effects based on the level of harm such that they were stronger at these group level disparities. Um, than they were at the more interpersonal scenarios, but they tended, um, these didn't interact. So um, pretty much across them, we found that there was both a pattern of the, the sex of the targets, so whether the, the male or females were harmed, but then we also saw an effect of the harm level such that the, the reactions were even stronger when it was these group disparities. So... Um, what that would, I think, suggest is that when we see differences in aggregate, so in these large social outcomes, so when we see women, you know, as a group being disadvantaged at the top of society, we're going to show, um, going to see more disparity and outrage um, compared to when we look at, you know, men being disadvantaged as a group uh, at the bottom of society. So it suggests that in aggregate, you should see stronger moral responses. But what we did find is that um, there was an effect of the sex of the harm targets such that people perceived harm to women as less fair. So harm to men was more fair. Uh, they felt more moral outrage when women were harmed or a female was harmed. They blamed men more for their own suffering. And they felt more sympathy when women were harmed. Um, we also actually included a scenario looking at uh, hypothetical donations to homeless shelters, and we manipulated whether they saw a female-only homeless shelter as one of their three options um, for which to donate to, and then whether they saw a male-only homeless shelter. Um, and what we did find differences such that participants were more willing to donate to a, um, a female-only homeless shelter compared to a male only one, uh, suggesting that these might have some tangible, you know, real world consequences in terms of, of money allocation. And indeed, we also found uh, effects for policy support. So participants more strongly supported policies that advantaged women, but not those that advantaged men. And they saw um, suffering 
women's suffering as more of a serious problem facing society compared to men's suffering. Yes, yeah, reminds me, there was a pretty old book called The Myth of Male Power, and parts of it were pretty controversial. But I think in one part of the book, the author talked about how both in good and bad, there's this, there's more sympathy for women. So we talked about how on Mother's Day, it's much more common for people to send really nice presents to their mother and call them where Father's Day tends to be kind of neglected and people might call their dad to wish them and that's it, or maybe not even that. But also that when it comes to getting charitable donations, um, when people make TV ads for charitable organizations that work in developing countries, they generally portray a girl um, in the ad to elicit pity. Yeah, I think that's right. And our our findings would suggest that is the more effective strategy. People felt more sympathy in response to female suffering, um, and they felt more moral outrage. So, if moral outrage compels, you know, donations or desire to you know, help the problem, then it, it would be wise of them to use uh, women as their, within their campaigns. I mean, it was interesting. I was researching different, you know, disparities and social outcomes. And I found a, a pretty consistently across my research that even in cases where men were more afflicted, the, the agencies would still describe the pattern in the percentage of, of women who were afflicted. So, for example, if you um, look at rates of homelessness, so, you know, 60% of homeless individuals are male, but yet when you go to, you know, look at the stats, they'd say 40% of homeless individuals are female, right? So, it, it was as though they needed to frame it in terms of the female victims to um, activate feelings of care or concern. Yeah. And like you said, that is actually pragmatic because it does do what they want it to do. It does elicit pity. I think an interesting inversion of this, actually, now that I think about the Mother's Day issue, is to think about how people, um, well, to put scenarios in front of people uh, where you talk about a person who keeps in touch with their mother but kind of neglects their father versus someone who keeps in touch with their father but neglects their mother. Or how much does a woman suffer when she gets widowed versus how much does a man suffer when he gets widowed and see if people tend to assume that men can cope with widowhood better and people assume that um, not keeping in touch with your father as you grow older is more acceptable than not keeping in touch with your mother. Yeah, it would be really interesting um, to see. I think you could come up with you know a whole slew of social scenarios where people would have the heuristic. And, you know, these could be accurate assessments. It's, it's quite plausible that women do feel more interpersonal pain at certain, um, certain situations on average. But, um, but I, I do think the point is that it, even if they're true on average, there are going to be plenty of times when we get it wrong and we overlook men's suffering because we don't tend to associate, you know, male suffering with this victim role. It's harder for us to, to place men in that victim category and see them as, as truly suffering. Right. I mean, there's a circular effect there where you perceive the state of affairs as normal. So if you're a man, you just get assumed to the amount of pity that you get when bad things happen to you and you think that's a normal amount of pity and sympathy to get. So if you, if you measure it in terms of like, do you feel like the world is being fair to you if you're a man? 
you're really not comparing yourself to women in a way. So to some degree, you just might find that people, you know, men say that they get the amount of sympathy they expect to get. But that's partly because people adapt to the norm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of uh, pressure from, you know, male cultural expectations around masculinity. A lot of it is, you know, man up and take it. You don't complain. You don't cry. You don't show weakness. And I think that would make sense if we think of our evolutionary past, you know, across human history, men were predominantly the ones that were on the battlefield, uh, you know, although there were certainly um, some female warriors, on average, it was men. And so, you know, men were choosing their coalitionary partners based on whether they could contribute out on the battlefield. And so you were looking, if you were, you know, an ancestral male for fellow men who would be tough, have a high pain tolerance, you know, we're going to be courageous, weren't going to freak out once, you know, the battle happened and, and leave. You wanted men who are going to be tough. And so I think, you know, over time, that created a lot of pressure, such that, you know, men, probably had, you know, a lot of social forces uh, encouraging them to reduce this victimization, you know, this cry out for help or, you know, honest expressions of suffering, because if anything, you would have just been excluded from the group. You would have been derogated by other men. Um, it wouldn't have helped your status. So I think, mm-hmm. I mean, you still still see that today, especially in, in contexts that demand, demand physical formidability. So, you know, in sports settings, you need to, you know, be tough. You can't, you know, express too much suffering or victimization. So I think, yes, even if you asked men, you might find that they say, oh, no, we're doing okay. But, (laughs) you know, we're fine. But if you look at at the data, you know, what the true disparities out there, it's, um, it's pretty astonishing. So um, there are a lot of cases in which men are actually quite disadvantaged, um, or at least uh, show, you know, worse outcomes. So, you know, homelessness, yeah. I cited, um, you know, education, men are less likely to graduate from college, from high school. Uh, they're 93% of prisoners are male drug addiction, 68% of admission to treatment centers are male. Um, If you look at health, men live five years shorter on average compared to women. Um, They're more likely to die of, you know, heart disease, Parkinson's. They're more likely to commit suicide, um, more likely to die at the workplace, more likely to um, suffer from mental retardation or intellectual disabilities. So there are a lot of cases where there is true suffering um, going on with men. And and I think based on these findings, it would suggest that it's harder for us to evoke the same, you know, concern or sympathy or moral response when we hear those stats or, or learn about that suffering. Yeah, there's a double-edged sword here too, where I think men, I mean, I know that men are perceived as more competent often. Uh, I mean, when it comes to interpersonal things like counseling, I think maybe women are perceived as more competent, but because men in general are perceived more competent, they're perceived as 
uh, more able to handle tough challenges. So it, it's unfair to women that men are considered more capable of handling things like leading a company and being a good CEO. Mm-hmm. So that's unfair to women. But on the other side, men are also seen as more competent when it comes to dealing with, with tough things like war, like fighting mm-hmm. in a war or dealing with physical challenges, which means that men are pushed in the situations um, where they're supposed to deal with them and then they are injured or they die. So there's very much this duality there. And I think with the English language also just lacks words for a distribution where both the right tail and the left tail are thicker for one category of person. Like there's no common English word you can just use to describe the fact that men are more likely to be CEOs and men are more likely to be homeless at the same time. Yeah, I think that is a a pattern that frequently gets overlooked. You know, you hear a lot of stories, uh, social media and the news about how women are underrepresented at, you know, the right tail of the social distribution at the top of society. It is true that women are less likely to be CEOs, you know, less likely to serve in roles of political leadership, um, less likely to be full professors. But if you look to the other side of the distribution, it's the case that, you know, men are overrepresented there as well. So at the bottom of society, homeless, drug addiction, you know, dropping out of high school, uh, incarceration, you find many more men there. And that's not part of the story that we often hear. So it's, I think it's important to shed light on that side as well. So, you know, I, if this, if this biased, um, moral typecasting is the case, as you pointed out, there's going to be a kind of a double-edged sword for each role. So men might be perceived as more competent, which gives them an advantage, you know, in, you know, business settings. But it's also going to mean that they are expected to enlist in the army and, you know, sacrifice their bodies and take these jobs that are really tough, um, you know, such as, you know, removing chemical waste where they're actually putting themselves at li- um, their lives at risk. Whereas for women, if you're if they are more easily typecast in that victim role, it's going to give them a disadvantage when they need to be agentic, such as in a position of leadership. But when they do, when they're suffering, that it's going to be easier for us to see detect that suffering and respond to it. Right. So where are you taking this research from here? We only have a couple of minutes left, but where are you taking this research from here? Well, right now we're trying to look at whether there are some boundary conditions. So, for example, if you increase the patiency of men, so um, do you see, does this pattern uh, go away? So, for example, if a, a man suffers from, you know, autism, do we then, can we eliminate this biased uh, application of moral typecasting. Um, we haven't yet explored some of the sides um, on the on the female side, but I think it would be really interesting to look at, for example, you know, if a woman, if we have evidence that she is agentic or at least possesses cues associated with agency, such as muscularity or you know a leadership role, do we do we then eliminate this biased application of moral typecasting? Well, that sounds fascinating. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It was an absolute pleasure. Tanya's article is tentatively titled, Man Up and Take It, 
the effects of moral typecasting on responsiveness to harm experienced by men and women. It's currently under review, so you can't find it online. It may be published in 2019. In the meantime, you can find links to our older articles on Google Scholar, and you can find links to the books and articles that we discussed in the show notes. If you have any comments about today's episode, please email me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.